Good morning. So I'm glad to be here with you this morning as we continue our 2019 campaign called The Story. As a church, we're journeying and going through God's Word together. It's a 31-week journey, and I'm just glad you could be here with us uh, for it. Now, today we're going to kind of do an overview or just look at really the beginning of one of the craziest books in the entire Bible. There's stories in there that are hard to fathom. It's the book of Judges, okay? If you've never read it, read it, go ahead and read the book of Judges, and you will come away with more questions than answers, I guarantee it. Some of you have probably heard of some of the people in the book of Judges, like Samson and, and Gideon, and, and while you probably have heard their stories, if you've never read their stories, then you've heard the edited-for-TV version, I promise you. It's a very crazy book in the Bible. I mean, terrible, terrible things happen, but to me, I believe it's one of the most important books in all the Bible. If we understand what's happening at the very, very beginning, we'll understand what's going on and what the authors are trying to teach us. Remember, every book in the Bible was written with a purpose. Scriptures didn't just fall out of the sky. And although we believe they're all inspired by God, we also know that there were human authors that were writing for particular purposes and telling certain stories. And if we understand that, especially the book of Judges will speak to us. It will scream to us. It will be gut-wrenching and heartbreaking. And I honestly believe if we get the purpose of the book, it will be completely life-changing for each and every one of us. And so with that, well, let's just do a quick overview. So far, we've seen through our studies, we've read through eight chapters of the story now, which means you've been through the beginning of the Bible. We've seen that in the beginning, God has created everything. That he created humans, and we share a special relationship with God. We were made in his image. Then humans chose to disobey God, and the consequences were devastating. And then we see God choose this man named Abram or Abraham and say, hey, I'm going to do something through you. I'm going to build a nation and this nation is going to be a light to the world. This nation is going to bless the entire world. So we called Abraham and we read his adventures and his kids' adventures and his grandkids' adventures. And so all of a sudden it becomes a pretty big group of people, but they're living in slavery under Egypt. And then from that we see God call this man named who? Moses, right, some of us are reading. We see Moses, and God uses Moses to set the Israelites free. You may not know all those stories, but you remember the plagues and all of that kind of stuff. And so God uses Moses to lead this group out, now this this nation of Israelites, to go to the land that God has promised them they would have. And so God tells this nation, says, go ahead and conquer the land, take the land I'm going to give you, it's yours. But the people said, well... They ended up not doing it. They ended up being scared instead of faithful. And we see right here, and we're going to continue on this theme, we see that an entire generation missed out on the blessings of God. And it's not, I'm not kind of imposing this idea of a generation. God literally tells them that we're going to wait till that generation dies, the faithless ones. And when they die, the next generation could come and conquer the promised land. So we see this idea of intergenerational stuff happening. And just like he says, Joshua, the next generation, Joshua comes and leads the people and they conquer the land. 
And in the book of Joshua, it's all about prosperity and blessing, about if you obey God, here's what happens. Here's the good things that happen. Here's the great things that God can do through you. And if you've missed any of these sermons, they're all online. You can go to our website or you can just read the copy of your story. They're found in there as well. So that's what we're picking up. We have the Israelites in the promised land with Joshua. Here's what it says, Judges 2, 6 through 7. It says, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of land, each their own inheritance. He's summing up what happened. The people served the Lord through the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So just like we talked about, through Joshua, they followed God. They got to experience and see the blessings of God. And it sounds like they're finally at peace. They're finally settled in. They can start building houses and banks and trains and all sorts of stuff, right? They can start building community. Then it says, verse eight, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timoth and hers, at Hears, in the hill country of Ephraim, the north of Mount Gash. So their great leader passed away. And so far we've seen two great leaders in the life of Israel. We've seen Moses and we've seen Joshua do some amazing things. Now what we're about to read sums up 200 years of the nation of Israel. It's their history. The section is setting up everything else that happens in the book. This section is introducing us to all the judges you're going to see. It's introducing us to chapters 3 through 16 where we hear about the story of the judges. And it's also introducing us to the two terrible stories you read in chapters 17 through 21. I'm not going to tell you those stories. I want to pique your interest. So maybe you open up and read it. But just a warning, it's bad. And so what we have to understand about this book, specifically judges, is that the author is setting up saying, here's the problem. Just like any novel you read, just like any movie you watch, the beginning sets the stage for the rest. You following me? That's what's happening here. It's a summary statement. Here's where we're about to see. Here's the problem. You see, can't, you can't just cherry pick stories when it comes to narratives or books. You gotta kind of read the whole thing to see what's really happening. And so here's what he's saying. Hey, he's setting the stage. He says this in Judges 2.10. He said, after that, after Joshua, a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, and another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. So after that generation grew up, who knew the Lord and served him well, the next one didn't know God. And the reason we see this dark, terrible book is because it's showing us what happens when a generation doesn't know the Lord. This is what happens when one generation knows the Lord, but doesn't reach down to the next generation. You see, the author is screaming to us. He's connecting the dots for us. They didn't do what Moses told us to do. So you remember Deuteronomy 6, 4, you've heard this verse. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You've heard this before. In fact, Jesus quotes it. Remember, this is part of the law that they were given. But it doesn't stop there. 
It continues. It says, these commands I give you today to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbol on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. So Moses teaches with all his wisdom, with all his experience, with all his successes, with all his failures. He says, Israel, you have to teach the next generation to be fully devoted to the Lord. You have to take a personal interest in it. I mean, you have to personally embrace it. You have to personally know that it's important, right? You have to know it, but then take an active, intentional interest on the next generation. He says, I mean, to talk about it when you get up. Talk about it with your children. Tie a symbol around your hand if that's what it takes for you to remember. When you walk in your home, put it on your door frame so you remember. I mean, how many of us have Christian little sayings in our house and we just ignore them, we forget that they're there, right? Put it on your door frame if you need to. Make sure you're remembering that this is what's important. Moses is saying, I already know what happens when a generation doesn't follow the Lord. I kicked up dust for 40 years. You don't want to do that. So the author of Judges is saying, hey, we saw a faithful one in Joshua, but they didn't reach down. They didn't do what Moses said to do. So Judges 2.10, looking at it again, says, after that, a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, and another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So the next generation, which means their children and grandchildren, didn't know him. They did not have a personal relationship with God. You see, you can't inherit faith. While we see all the great things Joshua's generation did, listen, this is very important. It was all destroyed by the next generation. And as we continue to go, it just gets worse and worse. See, you can build up everything. You can give your kids all the financial freedoms. You can build great security. You can impart how important education is. But if you don't impart a personal relationship with the Lord, the rest is pointless, meaningless, and it will fail. They set them up great security. Financially, security, they were set up for prosperity, but they didn't know the Lord. For the us, the most important thing we can do is point people to a relationship with Jesus Christ. But in order to do that, we must know Jesus. You see, what I firmly believe, and I hope you're finally here, and I'm, I repeat myself a lot, it's because Jesus will sustain them. Jesus will deliver them. Jesus will give them purpose and hope in this world. Nothing else will. If you're not pointing them to Jesus, we're setting them up for failure. See, my first message was on this verse. Most, some of you probably remember. And we will not sway. The most important thing we can do as a church is point people to Jesus Christ and help them grow in their relationship with him. As we've told you, our mission statement, we've come to the conclusion as a church is gonna be, <clears throat> our mission is to reach people with the good news of Jesus. That's the gospel. And to teach them to follow him. Because if we don't do that, everything else we do, everything else we do when we set up, 
it will crumble and it will fade. So we see they didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord, but they also didn't know what the Lord had done. Which means they stopped telling the stories of God. They stopped talking about what God was doing in their life and what God had done in their life. Through the stories of God, we understand God. Through the stories of God, we understand what he expects from us. Without knowing the stories of God, do you know what we'll do? We'll create our own. We'll create our own narrative. We'll start talking about what we think is right and what we think and how we think things should work. And then we'll expect God to do things that he never promised. We'll expect God to come through on things he never said he would. And then we'll have a generation of people who walk away because they never knew who he was to begin with. They'll get disappointed and they'll get mad saying, well, God didn't. But if they would have just read, he never said he would. See, we have a generation in our country right now that walking away because they don't know him. Because we haven't told them the stories. What we're going to find is they're not blamed for it. Who's blamed? The generation before. It's gut-wrenching. It's heartbreaking. But it can be life-changing. We, the generation above, have to take, have to own that. You see, if we don't impart the importance of the scriptures, if we don't teach how important and serious they are, they're gonna come to their own conclusions and it may not be what you like. And so a generation failed to reach the next. Their kids, grandkids didn't know God or what he had done. So what happens? Here's the summary of the entire book. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the people around them. They arose the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherahs. So because they didn't know God, they started following other gods. And this is called apostasy. It's when you turn from the true God and you start following. You walk away and you start serving and worshiping something else. And while we don't call I mean, how many of us have learned about Baal or Asherah? We're like, well, no one's talking about that. I don't see that, you know, I don't see TV channels about them. If we learn what these gods represent, we'll see we're not too far away today. You see, Baal was the weather god who controlled the vegetation in an agricultural country, um, environment and, and economy. What's more important than water? Nothing. Water's what grew their vegetation. Water's what fed their families. Water's what fed their livestock. So if it didn't rain, they couldn't eat, they couldn't live, and they didn't have any money, so they trolled their economy. And then we have Astra, which is the goddess of love and war. So these two powerful gods, according to scholars, are the two most powerful gods to the Canaanites. They represented fertility, and their influence was on secure, uh, excuse me, agricultural and animal husbandry, which is the buying and selling of animals. And then, of course, security, because you have the war aspect, that they'll keep us secure. People can't invade us. And so, Joshua's generation served the Lord faithfully. The next generation didn't know about him. So they turned and started worshiping deities, listen, that provided an abundance of food, money, we'll call it adult relations. Do you know what adult relations is? 
Okay, we have children here. Okay, adult relations and safety. I wonder if people turn from God to follow, well, security and comfort and money and adult relations and the abundance of stuff. You see, everybody worships something. Human beings, we naturally worship. We give our lives away to something. And if we don't point people to God, don't be surprised if they turn to worship the abundance of things, money, adult relations, and safety. Look what happens next. It says, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around them whom they were no longer able to resist. Now, this is important, so if you've tuned out, pay back attention. The key to understanding this is the covenant God made with Israel. Remember, we've talked about that. If you weren't here, go back and listen to it. We do not read the New Testament into the Old Testament. We are under what's called the new covenant through Jesus Christ. Israel was not under that. They were promised a great amount of prosperity if they were obedient. But if they were not obedient, they were promised, well, God would remove his protection from them. Let's say that. So remember, what we've seen and what we've learned about God so far is it's never okay to do whatever you want when you want that you can't expect to have the protection of God, the blessings of God, and then do whatever you want whenever you want. And so Israel, what they wanted, because remember, God drove them out of the land, so they knew their God was powerful in this aspect, but they wanted the protection from God, the blessings of God, but then let me do whatever I want. We ever felt like that sometimes? Well, God, look, bless me, protect me, but let me just do what I want. Like, can't that work? And he's like, no. It's never worked that way, and it never will work that way because you're not gonna promote my name. People aren't gonna look at you and what I've done through you. You're not gonna say you're serving me while you're out there doing that. And again, I, I gave some literature to your adult Sunday school classes that talked all about the Canaanite religion, Canaan. If your Sunday school teacher didn't go over with him, ask him about it because you understand you would not want, God would not, you understand why God would not want his name in the um, activities they were doing in that. And so Israel started doing what the Canaanites were doing. Now, God drove the Canaanites out of the land because of what they were doing. So when Israel starts doing it, guess what happens? They get there's no double, God's not like, well, Israel, you can do what you want. I'm just gonna punish them. God's like, no, I'm holy and just across the board. When the Israelites start doing what they did, God said, uh-uh, you can't do this. And they started, being, they started um, being overcome by their enemies. So it says in verse 15, whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. And it says they were in great distress. And so once they failed, this is going to be a common theme in the book of Judges. Once they failed, once they were overcome, they became distressed and they would cry out to God for help. And then in his grace, which you can't miss in this book, he would save them over and over again. And it says, then the Lord raised up judges who'd saved them out of the hands of these raiders. And so once they cried out, God would raise up this deliverer, this saving type of person and these are the judges we read. Now remember, a judge isn't someone who sits and like bangs a, a gavel. A judge is a military leader. That's, that's how they use the term. It's a, a savior type who would raise him up 
drive out the people who had conquered them, Samson, Gideon, and so forth. Look what happens. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. That's a very loaded sentence. You should think about that. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord would raise up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. All right, so here's the pattern we see in the book. We see apostasy. They would turn from God and start worshiping other gods. When they did that, God would, well, we'd see servitude. God would say, okay, you wanna worship these other gods? I'll take my protection off of you and we'll see how these other gods work out. Well, lo and behold, it didn't work out so well. Basically, you wanna serve these gods, let them protect you. Well, of course they couldn't because they're not real. And so then they would get taken over by their enemies. And once they get taken over by their enemies, what do they do? God, save us. We didn't mean to. It was an accident. Isn't this what we do? Come on, let's be honest. Listen, Lord, I'll go to church every week if you. God, if I just don't get fired, I know I've never been on time. But, but if I just don't get fired, I promise I'll be on time. And I'll even go to Wednesday nights. Like, Lord, come on, right? We start bargaining. Once we hit rock bottom, then all of a sudden we're like, oh, yeah, I should probably pay attention to God. Just on a side note, sometimes it's really good for people to hit rock bottom so they start paying attention to God. And so we see this apostasy. They cry out for God, and then God would say, no problem, and he would come and rescue them. We have a gracious God who wants to deliver and save us. He wants to be there for us. And then once they would turn back to God, things would go well. Well, just for the lifetime of that judge. See, verse 19 says, but when that judge died, the people returned to their ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices in stubborn ways. Can anybody here be considered stubborn? How about your spouse? I'm just kidding. I don't want to get you in trouble today. So here's what's going on. A generation, please don't miss this, a generation would follow a leader. God would bring up a leader. A generation would follow that leader. But listen, leaders can't change hearts. And they would get attached to a leader rather than the God. Listen, a true leader will point you to God, not themselves. Because what you're going to see in the Old Testament and the New, leaders aren't the answer. Who's the answer? You're going to see this theme throughout the Bible, and it's picking up now. I'm going to just highlight it. You're going to see this theme. Man, if leaders would just do what they're supposed to do, because most of the time, like Samson and all of them, they end up being part of the problem. Like they're not good examples at all. But you're going to start seeing this theme going, man, if there could be this one true leader that would come. If God would just send us the perfect like, king that could get this right. And you're going to see this theme like we just want somebody to lead us to be the people we've always meant to be. Who do you think that king's end up being? I don't want to ruin the story for you. It ends up being Jesus. We see this yearning and this groaning. So a generation would experience the blessings. They would follow the leader. But a generation got so caught up with themselves and their prosperity, instead of reaching down, 
They focused on themselves. And then another generation grew up who, need, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done. And so, although the judges were sent by God to rescue them, the same problem continues for 200 years. And we can read the consequences of this. We can see that what happens when they don't know God or what he has done. You see, the entire book of Judges is a warning. Listen, here's what happens when a generation is so consumed with themselves and they don't reach the next generation. And I don't think anyone in Israel meant for this to happen. You see, this book was written after the events. This book was written probably by the, the judge Samuel, who we're gonna learn it's very dear and near to his heart because his kids do some really messed up stuff. He's, he's gonna say, hey, looking back on it, here's where we failed. Here's what we didn't get right. You don't have to repeat this. And here's what's so important, church. I hope you're picking up. Israel's story doesn't have to be our story. This isn't our story. This is what happened to them. But what we can do is learn from their mistakes and embrace a different way. And that's to be seriously committed to reaching the next generation. We have to teach them about God, and we have to teach them the stories of God. You see, today, we know God through Jesus Christ. That, that's how we come to know who he is. And today, we know Jesus Christ through the scriptures. That's how we learn about him, which means we must be a Christ-centered, biblically-focused church, even in our next generational ministries. Even for two-year-olds, you can tell them that Jesus loves them you can tell them John 3, 16. We shouldn't start imparting scriptures when they're born. Let them hear God's word. So that goes through adults, through senior adults, but through babies and through preschool and through high school and through middle school and through elementary. Be a Jesus-centered, biblically-focused church. We'll never apologize for being Jesus-centered and biblically-focused. And as your pastor, I've told you from the very beginning, I take reaching the next generation very serious. Because every generation is one generation away from everything crumbling. From an entire generation not knowing God. In fact, if we would think it through, it just makes sense. The only way for your legacy to continue is by reaching to the next generation. It's the only way. Which means for us, we don't want our story, and this goes for all Christians, all churches, if we don't want our story to read like Israel's story, means that we must take responsibility for the upcoming generation. We must take responsibility for the upcoming generation. Our responsibility is to reach down for those who come behind us. Now, while each of us have to take a personal responsibility about knowing God we see that Moses tells us in the book of Judges is screaming out, if you want to solve the world's problems, do it through the next generation. Invest in them. We must see all kids as our kids. If we're family, then all kids are our kids. All youth are our youth. What if we collectively said, we will not allow a generation to be missing from our church? 
We won't. We'll take responsibility for that. Because while each generation is responsible for their actions, we see what the Bible screams out. The previous generation needs to take responsibility for what's coming up and impart the faith, which means as a church, we must be intentional about next generation ministries. See, every church, and you know this, every church, every organization has limited resources. We have limited time, leaders, volunteer, money, and staff. If it was unlimited, we could do absolutely anything we wanted, and it would be just awesome. But everybody's set with limited. And because it's limited, we have to choose what to invest in and what not to invest in. Does that make sense? Just like your personal finances, you can't buy whatever you want whenever you want. Well, maybe for like a year. And then it catches up with you and you have to pay it back. So since we have limited, which for us, we have to be intentional about next generational ministries. And yes, while we're looking for a next generation pastor, we don't want to wait. We want to start now. Because if we take responsibility collectively, we don't just think a leader is going to come and solve our problems because church, they won't. But Jesus will. We want someone to help God, not be our God. That's Jesus. And so here are the things that we need to start thinking about at First Baptist Church. First, and here's ways that you can help and be involved. First is children's church. We have to create an environment for children to learn a way that they understand. I don't want children to learn how to sit in church. Listen, my children learn how to sit and be quiet in school all the time. I want my children to enjoy church and fall in love with Jesus. I don't want them to learn how to sit. I want them to learn that church is fun and Jesus is amazing. I want children to drag the parents out of bed because many of you parents need to be dragged out of bed. Amen? I want our kids to be like, what you, we're going to church and get mad. My kids, when we don't go to church, they get mad. They get upset. They want to be at church. We want that to continue. And we're going to work on this. We need all hands on deck in order for us to create that environment. Well, how about this? The more volunteers we have, the less burden it will be on everybody. And you know, just like I know churches are infamous for, hey, sign up now and you can quit when you die. And by the way, you got to do it all. But if all of us, and I know you're burnt out, I know you're tired, I have kids too, but I promise you I would do children's church if I wasn't occupied during Sunday services already. I would. I mean, I can ask Eric to preach. I'm about to start asking Eric to do a lot. I mean, I can ask him to preach and I'll do it. But if all of us pitched in because we all took responsibility, it wouldn't be a burden, but it would be a joy and we also, just to get, so children start to think, hey, you want to hold babies? We got nursery. You want to love and hold on babies? Go for it. Maybe that'll help some of you out. You want to work with preschool? You want to invest in two to four-year-olds? You can do that as well. You want to hang out with middle schoolers? Or you want to get asked some extremely hard questions? Hang out with the high schoolers. You thought you knew what you were talking about until you hang out with them. You see, all those ministries are next generational. Invest in them. Be a part of them. And here's what you're doing, because sometimes we miss this. No one's asking you to babysit. 
because you don't babysit when you point people to Jesus and you point them to the scriptures. Jesus-centered, biblically focused. But what you're doing by doing this is you're partnering with parents. They know they're not alone in raising their kids to the faith because as a parent, I can tell you, it's hard. How do you know what to say? How do you know not what to say? It's great to talk to parents who have been there before you. Say, hey, how'd you handle this? So we communicate to the parents that, hey, we're in this with you. We also give the parents the ability to be poured into because they're not yelling at their kids while they're sitting in service, which is what we do. And we give the parents the ability to go to Sunday school classes and them to grow in their faith because a parent can't help their children in faith if they don't have faith. So some of us who've been here a little bit longer may know a little bit more. You're a prime candidate for this. But it's also discipling the next generation so they can know and grow in Jesus. Because according to scriptures, all of us should take an active part in this. And listen, there are so many of you who volunteer for this now, and we thank you. From the bottom of my heart, as a father, I thank you for the time and investment you're pouring into our children. Because I know my kids aren't easy. And you can pretend they are, and I thank you for that. But from the bottom of my family's heart, we thank you. And I bet every parent would say the same thing. We thank you. Because we know it's not easy. We know you'd rather be at home watching TV. But thank you for doing that. So we must take responsibility. We must be intentional. And here's the hard one. We must sacrifice to reach the next generation. That's the hard part that nobody really wants to do. I mean, nobody wants to say, yeah, I, I want to sacrifice today. Like, wake up in the morning like, hey, today's going to be the day I just sacrifice. But according to Paul, Romans 12, 1, it says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So, According to Paul, worship isn't about music. It's not about Sunday service. According to Paul, true worship is offering our entire lives and everything we have back to him. Saying, God, here I am. I'm on board with what you're doing in this world and I wanna serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's all that I am. Here's my time, my talents, my treasures. Here it is. I give them all back to you. You see, so what about you? What are you willing to sacrifice to reach the next generation? Because in order to invest in them, you're going to have to say no to you. And it's hard. That's why it's called sacrifice. But that's what we're called to do. And if we don't want our stories to read like the book of Judges, we've got to take responsibility. We've got to invest intentionally. And we've got to sacrifice for them. In other words, we're called to model the life of Jesus Christ to the next generation. You see, as we take the Lord's Supper today, which is, is so perfect, it works, that we remember that Jesus did this for us. You see, our problem was a sin problem. Christ took responsibility for our sin. While he was yet perfect, while we were in sin, Christ died for us. He took responsibility for what we did. He didn't just go, well, I'll just let it figure itself out. He intentionally wrapped himself in human flesh and came down to live among us, to die for us and be raised to life so we could experience that in him. 
So he took responsibility by paying for it. He intentionally came down to us. And of course, he sacrificed himself for us. He gave up his life so we may live. And so as we come to the table this morning, I don't want you to just think about what Christ did for you. I want you to think about what Christ did for you in order for you to do for others. Because now we have a new life in Christ. So the problem that every generation will face, how do we reach the next generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ? See, our story doesn't have to be, our story isn't the book of Judges, and our story doesn't have to be like the book of Judges. But we have to take responsibility. We gotta be intentional, and we gotta be sacrificial. So what part can you play? And as we come to the table, I want you to think about that. Because it's serious. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you so much for the gift of life you've given us. Father, while we all have to take responsibility for our relationship with you, and we all have to personally know you, we know that's just the beginning of the Christian life, that's not the end. And our new walk with Christ means that we intentionally invest in others. We disciple others. We give our life and our time and our talents and our treasures so others may know you and grow. Father, as a church, I just pray that you collectively speak to us that as we strive to reach the next generation with the gospel, that you show us how to be intentional, that you bring everybody on board to take responsibility for it, and that we're all willing to give up, to sacrifice. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So now is the time we're gonna come to